Hey there, I'm Phil Vischer, and I choose truth over tribe. I hope you do too. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Phil Vischer is in your home. No, he's not a creeper. He's the VeggieTale creator. But he's had a new gig for the past few years. Instead of creating family entertainment, he's using his innumerable talents to create the Holy Post. That's a podcast where he talks politics and culture, especially as it relates to the Christian church. And that means Phil talks about a lot of controversial topics. He's willing to challenge Christians, but he's so transparent about his own personal failures that even when you disagree with him, you can't help but still like him and respect him. But my question is, how did the guy who developed VeggieTales, the iconic Christian family entertainment of the 90s and 2000s, start challenging Christians to give their loyalty to Jesus and not politicians? Let's ask him. Phil Vischer, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thanks for having me. Glad I could be here. My kids grew up watching VeggieTales, and so I guess you hear this all the time, but I just want to say from one family to another, thank you for all that you did for our family. I have to admit that when my kids were in that stage of life, they're much older now. I was in seminary up in Chicago. Life was a blur. I don't know if this is a compliment to you or an insult. I don't mean it that way, but I knew Larry Bob and Junior, but I had no idea who Phil Vischer was. Yeah, because you weren't watching the DVD bonus features. Oh, no. You would have gotten to know me quite well. But years later, I hear about this podcast called The Holy Post, and I'm like, what? what's that about? And they go, Phil Vischer does it. And I'm like, who's that? Who's that guy? Oh, he's the VeggieTale guy. I'm like, oh, that guy. Do you get that all the time? That people see you in your life through the VeggieTale lens? Or is that so far in the past? No. Of course, people know you for what you are most known for. So <laughs> since that's what I'm most known for, you know, it's like, oh, you used to play uh, football for the Rams. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of things since then. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, you used to play football for the Rams. Well, yeah, okay. Mike Tyson's so, always yeah. going to be a boxer, no matter what he yeah, does afterwards, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and I'm always going to be a vegetable. It's, it's similar, <laughs> but different. So one of the things that I loved about your book, me, myself, and Bob, is that you were really transparent and humble in that book. And you were saying that the VeggieTale idea, it wasn't just a hobby. It wasn't a job. It was the way you were going to serve God. And all that kind of fell apart eventually. But where did that dream come from? 
Um, uh, well, I grew up in a, a high-functioning Christian ministry family, you know, where my great-grandfather was the first non-denominational radio preacher in America who went on the radio in 1923 and preached every Sunday morning until 1964 when he died. So he started a Bible and missionary conference. I was there every year. One of my great-uncles was the first white person to enter a whole section of Irian Jaya, bringing the gospel to cannibals actual cannibals. I feel like I'm reading Hebrews 11 right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My grandparents, you know, were friends with A.W. Tozer and Billy Graham. And my mom remembers at eight years old sitting on the couch in her grandpa's house on the couch in between Bob Jones Jr. and Bob Jones Sr. Really? Sitting on either side of her. That had to be eight. scary and scarring, was it? For an eight-year-old, well, it was probably weird. Yeah. But she didn't really know what she was sitting next to. So that's my family heritage. I kind of grew up thinking, well, what am I going to do? You know, what's my big thing going to be for God? Because that's kind of how you got praise, you know, in our family was you did something big for God. I didn't want to go to Erie and Jaya. I was a shy <laughs> kid. I liked playing with super eight millimeter cameras and puppets in the basement. I didn't really see how that translated well into jungle ministry. So when MTV turned on, I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember watching all these experimental, really fun music videos that people were starting to make using this new art form. And then also noticing the value messages in the videos and thinking, okay, this is fantastic artistically and creatively. I love what these filmmakers are doing in terms of what the values being communicated to young Americans are. I'm very concerned about this. I wonder if maybe that's my big thing. If that's what I'm supposed to do is use technology to promote Sunday school messages instead of the world's messages. How many Christian ministries are inspired by MTV? Probably not many. Oh, at least a couple. I'm going to assume. I don't know. But yours was, at least in part, or you got a vision for how you could use that technology to share a different message. And of course, that took off and you saw a lot of success. I think a lot of families like mine out there really benefited from those stories. It all kind of fell apart. And if you want to know more about the story, you can read the book where you're super transparent. It's called Me, Myself, and Bob. And it's worth a read, that's for sure. And it's funny, too. It's not just, oh, no, look what happened to his ministry. That's too bad. It's a great read. I really liked it. But in that book, you speculate that God gives people dreams and then takes them away to see if they really wanted God or if they just wanted what God would give them. And when your dream got taken away, you say you're asked this question, what kind of God would stand back and watch a dream, a good dream for ministry and impact fall apart? How do you answer your own question? Yeah, I answer it by looking back at my life and recognizing how miserable I had become chasing that dream. I was convinced that I was going to be the Christian Walt Disney. That was my dream. I'm going to be the Christian Walt Disney. I'm going to build theme parks and hotels, and I'm going to save the world's children from the evils of Hollywood. It is my destiny. And when it actually starts working, well, this is clearly God working. And so I need to not mess this up. So I need to work even harder. You know, I need to work harder and I need to worry a lot that I'm going to mess this up 
That always helps. <laughs> yes, that always helps because God has given me this amazing vehicle and I'm in the driver's seat for whatever the reason. And the worst thing I could possibly do is drive it off the road into a ditch, you know, and how disappointed my grandparents would be, how disappointed God would be. Everyone would be worse off if I mess this up. And I put myself under so much stress that I ended up in the hospital with pericarditis, a viral infection in the lining of your heart. I got shingles at the age 30, you know, from stress. And so after it fell apart, I looked back and realized that God let it die, not because he didn't love me, but because he loved me so much and wanted to save me from myself. Because he never called me to be Walt Disney. He called me to be Phil, to be a child of God. But I was too impatient. We're often too impatient to figure out who God made us to be. So we pick someone else and say, I'm going to be the next fill in the blank. My wife wanted to be the next Sandy Patty. I wanted to be the next Walt Disney. Or you want to be the next Rick Warren. Or you want to be the next Bill Hybels. Or you want to be the next, you know. No, who does God want me to be? God wants me to be Phil. And I have to shut up, slow down, and sit still long enough for him to show me who that is. Well, it's interesting because I think my kids learned from VeggieTales that you're special, right? God made you yes. special. Yes. So hurry up and be someone else. Maybe you needed to listen to the end of VeggieTales because it had an awesome ending. But I was so special because I'd been picked by God to be the next Walt Disney. So I think that's probably what I would have said at the time. And that's really special to be the next Walt Disney. Yeah, that's fair. So one last thing about that time of your life is that you say that there was a woman who would anonymously send you letters. And they were very complimentary letters, but she would always include in them a warning about your pride. I couldn't tell if she saw your pride or if she was just warning you like that was on the horizon. Anybody would fall into the temptation of pride. Did you ever figure out who that was? No. You no. still don't know? <laughs> no. Did she still send you letters? No. No, it was for about probably a two-year period. I think it was your wife. It might have been my wife or my mother. It's probably my mother. Every month, every other month, I'm glad things are going so well for you, but be careful of your pride. And I just thought, well, this is kind of rude. This is very presumptuous because obviously I don't have a pride issue. I don't think I'm doing a good job. I think I'm going to mess this all up. I'm worried all the time. No, but my pride issue was making my work all about me and my self-identity. You know, as I was more focused on my work than I was on my savior. Even if your work is for your savior, if you're more focused on the work than your relationship with God, you're headed for trouble. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt the people that are following you. It's hard to hear that even people involved in Christian ministry doing good things for God can let those ministries become idols in their life. And yeah. it's hard to understand how that could possibly happen. But as a pastor, I completely get how it can happen. It's probably happening in my life more than I would care to admit. So Veggie Tales comes to a close. You open a new chapter in your life with the Holy Post. And it's a podcast, but it's more than a podcast. It's a ministry, I think is fair to call it. And you do that with Sky Jathani. And then either Christian or Caitlin are on. And I can never figure out, how do you decide who's on, Christian or Caitlin? We're alternating right now. We started out, it was just Sky and I. It started out because I thought maybe I should do like be Stephen Colbert and do a little talk show. Would that be hard to do, like a TV talk show? And so my friend Christian, who's a producer, said, let's do a pilot. And so she put together, we figured out how to do a pilot. It was a nightmare. We wanted a live studio audience. It was like, that's a nightmare. Where do you get one of those? <laughs> so we did a pilot and it didn't really go anywhere. But we thought, well, we've pulled all this together. Why don't we do a podcast? Because that's way easier. Way easier. 
So the TV talk show lasted one episode. Uh, the podcast is on 477 as of this week. And my friend Sky, who at that time was the editor of Leadership Journal at Christianity Today and also went to church with me, really bright guy. And he has a seminary degree so he can keep me from being heretical. He came in to be the co-host. And then Christian sat in just as the producer to be a third voice. And then we bumped into Caitlin Shess, who's a young author. She just graduated from seminary. Already has her first book published on politics and theology. Yeah, I read it. It's a great book. Yeah, great book. Great uh, book. The Liturgy of Politics is Caitlin's book. So he said, okay, let's, you know, we want younger people too, because Christian and I are both the same age. We're getting old. And Sky's a little younger. He's like 10 years younger, but he's still getting old. So we need fresh blood. So now we're rotating Caitlin into it. It's a lot of fun. And then there's Jason, I think. Is that his name? He's the producer. Not Jason edits. The only thing I know about him is that he likes cinnamon rolls. There's something about Jason and cinnamon rolls. Yes. Jason is an advocate for cinnamon roll consumption. He edits the show. So he just sits in. He also makes a good laugh track because he's easy to amuse. And we like that. And so in this podcast, if you haven't listened to it, you should. You guys kind of talk about a lot of fun things. It's funny, it's light, but then you kind of turn towards serious issues in the course of it. And when you turn to serious issues, the ones that I've listened to, I would say that you are doing kind of commentary on cultural and political issues, especially as they relate to the evangelical church. Does that seem fair? Is that a good description? We are trying to help Christians live Christianly in an increasingly post-Christian culture and in an evangelical church that is very often co-opted by culture, whether it's politics, race, all these issues where they seep into the church and you don't even notice. And, And here's what motivates us. There are a million kids. Some of them were raised on veggie tales. And they're now 20, 24, 25 young adults, and they're standing at the back of their church. They're standing at the back door with one foot in and one foot out, just saying, give me one good reason not to leave. Just give me one good reason not to leave. And that's who we want to have the conversation with. Just say, wait, 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 before you go, wait, wait, just... Just give us, you know, let's talk about this. What's frustrating you? What do you see in the church that you find hypocritical? What do you see in the culture that you find more like Jesus than what you see in the church? Let's bring those things out in the open and talk about them. So at the very least, you know you're not the only one having this issue. There is a community of people at the back of the door, you know, the back door of the church saying, just tell me why not to leave. And when we can find community among those people, you find a reason to stay and work to make it better. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah, when I listen to you, I get the impression that you are trying to create a safe space to critique the church, to look at the church and say, the church has made some mistakes. Sometimes they're small, sometimes they've been really big. Sometimes they've hurt a lot of people and done a lot of damage and hurt the reputation of Christ. So I get the impression that you're a bit uncomfortable with your fellow Christians, with your fellow evangelicals. And if that's fair, and I'm pretty sure it is, but you can push back if you want. But the question I really want to ask you is how does the creator of the most iconic Christian family entertainment become the guy who is uncomfortable being a part of the evangelical church? How does that happen? Yeah, um, I don't know that I would describe myself as being uncomfortable being part of the evangelical church because I feel comfortable critiquing my own tribe. 
when you don't feel that it's okay to critique your own tribe, then you get really uncomfortable and you get uncomfortable with people who do think it's okay to critique your own tribe. So we have people saying, well, why aren't you criticizing the Catholic church? Why aren't you criticizing the Greek Orthodox church? It's like, well, that's not my church. You know, that's I know my own community. I love my own community. I want to improve my own community. So I feel very comfortable saying, let's look at our own dirty laundry. Let's look at the skeletons in our own closet around issues like race and politics and culture. And then let's help our own community have those hard conversations so we can improve our own community. And I'm very comfortable doing that. You know, that's fair. I completely think it's legitimate to critique our own tribe. And that's one of the problems we have in our broader culture is that people don't want to say difficult things. It's not heroic. It's not brave to say things that your tribe applauds, but hurts other people. It's heroic and brave to say things that are hard to people you like and are your friends and are on your team, whether it's a theological team or a cultural team or a political team. That's really what bravery is. So, so you and I are roughly the same age. We both grew up in the Midwest, you in Iowa, me in Missouri. One big thing that's a difference between us is I didn't grow up in a Christian home and didn't become a Christian until a little bit later in college. You grew up, as you already told us, in a very devout home. And I think that that has shaped your thoughts about evangelicalism and your own tribe. Do you see that, that the way that you were raised has made a difference in your views today? Undoubtedly, it's where I start from, you know, so my starting place is knee deep in evangelical tradition. But a certain kind, right? I mean, a fundamentalist kind. Uh, Upper Midwestern, I moved to the Wheaton area when I was still in middle school. So from middle school on, there was more fundamentalism in my great-grandparents and grandparents. I mean, my great-grandparents were right around the time of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So the split in Christianity in North America, and they fell squarely on the fundamentalist side because either that or you were giving up on the deity of Christ and all sorts of things. You certainly didn't want to do that. But then by the time of my grandparents, this also included, you don't see movies, you don't play cards, you don't swim on Sundays. You know, so we were really stacking up the rules to show that we were different. The Israelites had all of their rules to show how they were set apart from the rest of the nations. And fundamentalists had their rules to show, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. And so that's my upbringing. Um, but because we moved to Wheaton, you know, and Wheaton is the center of neo-evangelicalism, which was the Billy Graham, Harold Gay, Carl Henry movement that was partly a reaction to Southern fundamentalism. I have a very interesting split where I really grew up intellectually in Northern neo-evangelicalism, even though some of my heritage traces closer to Southern fundamentalism, although we were never Southerners, which helps because you didn't have quite the racism issues in your fundamentalism in Northern fundamentalism. So I think it makes a difference that you grew up in a devout home, but a certain kind of devout home with lots of rules, yeah. no alcohol, no movies, no television. But those weren't my rules. Those were my grandparents' rules and great-grandparents' rules, and they didn't raise me. So, yeah, and my dad walked out when I was nine. My mom became a single parent. We were living for a couple of years below the poverty line in Iowa before moving to Illinois, and she eventually remarried. So a lot of that tradition just kind of got blown up by the chaos of my eight to 10-year-old years where our family just 
fell apart. And when it came back together, it came back together as a new family, kind of in the context of of more free-thinking Northern evangelicalism because we lived a stone's throw from Wheaton College and there were Wheaton College professors in my church and leading my youth group. And so the really tight rigidity of fundamentalism started falling away in mid-childhood. That makes sense. And I appreciate the explanation there. It's a nuance. It's a nuance. Yeah, no, it is. But it's an important nuance because, because I think that the fact that I didn't become a Christian until I was later in life, as a college student, I didn't have that baggage. Now, I probably had a different set of baggage that I had to carry around and unpack and sort through. I get it. We all do. But your particular form of baggage of your mom sitting between Bob Jones and Bob Jones Jr., I mean, that kind of upbringing, whether it's directly or not told you you can't do this or that, it shapes the culture that you grow up in. And I think it probably shapes your view of fundamentalism and a certain kind of evangelicalism that you don't like because you're pushing back against that fundamentalist side of your upbringing. But what makes me probably a little bit different and maybe a little bit unexpected to be in this role is that my personality type is I like to follow the rules. Okay. I am not a rebel. I hated getting in trouble as a kid. I didn't want to get in trouble at church. I didn't want to get in trouble at school. I never got in trouble at high school. What changed? Because you're in trouble now all the time. I'm in trouble now all the time. What changed is these aren't rules. I enjoy learning things. I enjoy filling in holes. I mean, I'm a head type. I'm intellectually wired. I feel closest to God when I'm learning. So I enjoy, you know, trying to figure out how did the church get to where it is right now in this moment in history? What happened? And then when I learned that and I learned something new, it's like, oh, I want to tell everybody about this. I want to share this with everybody. So I started doing that and where we probably got into, well, no, we've gotten into trouble on lots of issues. But when you realize that some people have their position and their position is a deep source of emotional security that I've figured this out and I'm on the right side of this issue. And it could be women in ministry. It could be how old is the earth and does Genesis 1 tell us how old the earth is? Or it could be, has the white conservative church in America been a force against racism or a force for racism? And a lot of people have so much emotionally invested in what they believed to be true while they were growing up that to say, hey, new information, new information that we might need to rethink. You know, we weren't as great on the race question as you might have thought. Everybody wants to appeal to Wilberforce. And while that's true, he did do a lot. There's a few years in between that they tend to skip over. (laughs) But being a Northern evangelical, I would cling to Billy Graham. Say Billy Graham made them take down the ropes that segregated his crusade. He was on the right side of history, you know, but then you have to dive into it and realize, and he also told Martin Luther King Jr. to put on the brakes when he started marching. It's like, oh no, oh rats, you know, so it's good to know. I guess that's probably my motto in life. It is good to know. If you're like me and you leave each episode with a lot to think about and wishing you could go just a little bit deeper, you should subscribe to the Truth Over Tribe newsletter. Not only do we explore the topic further, but we also interact with people who disagree with us and tell you about upcoming episodes. 
Just go to choosetruthovertribe.com and sign up for the newsletter there. You are obviously a smart guy. You like to learn. You're witty. You're fun. You're super talented. And Why, thank you. A little man crush, but really I don't. <laughs> but it seems like you use those talents. One way you enjoy employing them is to needle conservatives or to lampoon sacred cows of the Christian right. And I don't mean Bible-believing, Jesus-loving evangelicals. I mean Christians who have blended their politics and their faith together. You enjoy popping those balloons. Oh, enjoy might be a strong word. Sky enjoys it. Sky enjoys it, but you're just drug along? I don't know. No, no, no. Sky enjoys it. I think it's important that we point out things like the (laughs) not every biblical belief is encapsulated by the Republican Party platform, you know, and not every satanic position is encapsulated by the Democratic Party platform. You can find biblical positions in both platforms. And boy, that's hard for some people to hear because of the way we've been talking for the last 40 years in the conservative church in America. Now, I am just old enough to remember that the year of the evangelical, according to Newsweek magazine, was the year where we all voted a Democrat into the White House, Jimmy Carter. So I'm old enough, just barely old enough to remember that it's changed. Yeah. Like I said, I'm roughly the same age you are. In 1976, the year of the evangelical, Jimmy Carter gets 49% of the evangelical vote. And that's the last time we have anything near those numbers, starting with Reagan forward. The percentages of evangelicals that voted Republican were 75% and north of that, which brings us to our former president, President Trump. Not familiar with him. (laughs) I pick up that you're pretty disappointed with the evangelical church for turning out and so much support of President Trump. Now, I've said this before on our podcast and told lots of people that I did not vote for him in the first election nor in the second. I voted for uh, Kanye in 2020. So I'm not a Trump defender, but I am curious what you think evangelicals should have done given the choice between Trump and Clinton and Trump and Biden. Do you think they should have voted for Biden? How should they have handled it? And what's your specific critique about those who voted for the president? I don't know if I have a single specific critique because honestly, you know, many of my family members voted for Trump in both elections. You know, many of my extended family members. Did they do that holding their nose or did they do that enthusiastically? Uh, Start out during the primary as some nose holding and became enthusiastic. And it primarily became enthusiastic as the conservative media kind of painted a distorted picture of what was happening, what he was doing, what his policies were, you know, so that I could sit down with someone and say, yeah, but aren't you concerned about his policies on refugees? And I'd find out that they've never heard of his policies on refugees because the right-wing media wasn't telling that story. So anything that was clearly unbiblical that he was doing in terms of policy was simply being ignored by right-wing media. And if you were in a left-wing media silo, you never heard anything positive, ever. 
that he did or that any of his policies did. If you were in a right-wing media silo, you never heard anything negative in any of his policies. So I stopped watching cable news probably halfway through the Trump administration because it was just impossible to just get the facts. That made your life better right there, stopping that. (laughs) What I do instead is I scan headlines from a couple of different news feed apps and scan a couple hundred headlines a day just to get a feel for what's happening and how are different news outlets spinning it. Because I want to know what people are saying about the news from different views, because then you can kind of find the truth in the middle. I wrote a piece on my blog that I later took down because it just proved to be too inflammatory. Like right. See after- what I'm saying? You like to break the rules. You like controversy. No. And you're telling me you don't enjoy it, but Sky does. I Come on, man. I don't. But I just said, we just went from the first African-American president in our history to the first president in recent memory who received a full-throated endorsement of the KKK. You know, as evangelical Christians, I think we owe an explanation to our non-white Christian brothers and sisters, what we just did. Okay, that's that's powerful. And I don't disagree. Remember, I didn't vote for him. But I didn't vote for either candidate. Right. Uh, well, right. Kanye. I still want to know what you think. Well, what we should have done? People should have done. Because I have Christian friends who love Jesus. And some of them voted for Hillary. Some of them abstained. Some of them voted for Trump. And probably the majority of my friends voted for Trump. Mostly, I think, with their nose held. Some maybe enthusiastically. But I think they would look at you and go, okay, but I had these choices. What did you want me to do? And then I voted for him, and now you beat me up. You had more than two choices. So you would say vote for a third-party candidate. Yeah, yeah. Some people say that's throwing your vote away. I'm with David French, who's on our show quite often, a really good conservative thinker, a lifelong Republican, and also a never-Trumper, who said if a significant number of people are rejecting both major party candidates, the parties will get the message. And eventually they'll realize maybe we need to put forth candidates that aren't detestable to so many people. You don't have to vote for one of the major party candidates. David French's metric was he he debated Eric Metaxas. Yeah, fascinating debate that David French, Eric Metaxas debate at John Brown University on whether or not a Christian should support Donald Trump. And his point was the number one thing is character. The number two thing is policy. If there isn't a candidate that meets your number one of character, don't vote for any of the candidates and just complain, you know, just say this is stupid that we're not even putting up a candidate that has the basic fundamental character necessary, you know, and whether you decide that Joe Biden has character or whatever, that say, okay, yes, enough. I think he has just enough character. Now let's go to the policies. Do you find the policies acceptable? If the answer there is no, okay, don't vote. Don't vote for either one of those. Vote for a third party. Write in your dog, you know, protest. Ah, this is dumb. And make noise about it. You know, make noise about it. I completely agree. I love David French. I completely agree. That's the position that I took. I think somebody's got to earn my vote. I don't have to vote for the two yahoos you put in front of me. Yeah, make them earn your vote. But because we fell into this partisan mindset that if the candidate from my party doesn't win, the country is going to be destroyed. Right, fear is easy to sell. Yes, yes. So that basically means you have to vote for anyone that your party and this is on either side, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Green Party or whatever, if you are that enslaved to this notion that the other side wants to ruin America and only your side 
loves or cares about your country, you have no choice. You literally have no choice. But you're also believing a lie because the differences are over policy. They're not over intention. One side is not evil and the other side is not good. They're both evil and good. And I think in some sense, that's the definition of tribalism, that you don't vote for something, you vote against someone, right? right? I don't pick my tribe based on beliefs. I pick my beliefs based on the tribe. First, I pick my tribe, then I pick my reasons for voting for this or that candidate. Well, the number of you know Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that want fewer immigrants led into America. Well, what does the Bible say about immigrants? What's our attitude supposed to be toward immigrants? Well, you build a wall and you keep them out. Conservative white evangelicals in 1996 were the religious group in America most committed to the idea that character counts in leadership. In 2016, they became the least concerned group in America about character and leadership. Literally, when asked, how important is this? They went from, oh, this is the most important, and we think it's more important than any other group, to this is not important at all. And we think it's less important than any other religious group in America. So that's how much tribalism and partisanship has compromised how we read the Bible and apply it to our daily lives. Well, I'm old enough to remember Bill Clinton's uh, problems in the White House. Yes. And whether it was James Dobson or Jerry Falwell, so many people said that character mattered, that it didn't matter what his policies were. He has bespoiled and besmirched that high office and must be removed. And of course he had. I sure yes. don't want to uh, say that he had. I, he, I he of course there. had. <laughs> you were there in the White House? I was, well, off to the side. It was in the yard. They wouldn't let me in. So he needed to go because of character. Character matters. And then all of a sudden, character doesn't matter. And I think what it shows is that what people really wanted, at least that group, I'm not saying all evangelicals, I'm just saying that group of court evangelicals, they wanted power. And yes. that's what was important to them more than character. So I want to go back to this issue of whether you're comfortable being an evangelical and calling yourself that. Yes. Because I get the impression that you are embarrassed of your fellow evangelicals. And I understand, I am too, I look around and I see a lot of stuff that goes on, whether it is power trips, you know, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, or whether it is sexual immorality in pastor's offices, or whether it is selling out to have a seat at the table on political issues. I was embarrassed by the number of Christian signs and themes that were present at the riot on January 6th. There's a lot, but then I step back and I go, hang on, should I be embarrassed? Because all those same sins are true in my heart, and I haven't done those things, and they haven't done my things, but, but do I get the right to be embarrassed? I don't know. So are you embarrassed of your fellow evangelicals? How do you think about this? No, I don't think I've ever said that. I see people do things that are embarrassing. It's like that you should be embarrassed to, <laughs> to have done They that. should be embarrassed for themselves. You should be embarrassed to have done that. I think if I say, oh, I'm embarrassed, I'm probably over-identifying with them. If I'm, em okay. like, if I'm embarrassed by the guy who had the, you know, Jesus 2020 sign while storming the Capitol, I'm not embarrassed by that guy because he's crazy and he's not me. But he's an evangelical and so are you. But you're able to keep some distance. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, N.T. Wright is also an evangelical, and Dallas Willard was an evangelical, and John sure. Stott is an evangelical, and Carl Henry is an evangelical, and Beth Moore is an evangelical, and Russell Moore is an evangelical, and David French is an evangelical. It's a big tribe. So, you know, show me a ridiculous evangelical, and I'll show you a commendable evangelical, which tells me that we're all mixed up people 
and there's good and bad in all of us. I mean, Cornell West was talking about how the left needs Jesus. We just covered it on the podcast. And people say, but how can you hang out with some of these crazies or some of these gangsters? And he says, there's hoodlum in me. There's gangster in me. I like that answer. Yeah, that is in me. And I cannot say, oh, I cannot befriend that person. I cannot associate with that person because there's a foolishness or sinfulness in their life because that's me too. We're all there. Well, I completely agree. And that means that I should be able to be around and befriend uh, the quote unquote sinners, but also the sinners that are evangelicals. I can't be self-righteous right. to the self-righteous or a Pharisee to the Pharisees. Right. I, I need to be able to live with all people knowing that I need as much grace, if not more than they do. Right. But you also need to be willing to call out the sin in your own house and not just point to the sin across the street. You mentioned Eric Metaxas, and he was an author. Uh, he had a book on Wilberforce. He had a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and was kind of an up-and-coming evangelical, someone that people respected. I learned later on after I'd read some of his books that he was also part of Big Idea Productions, which made Veggie Tales, at least for a year or so. I, I don't know the whole story there. Uh, but then he left, and he went way down the Trump train. You know, He went full-on, full-out not just an apologist for a certain set of political principles, but an apologist for uh, Donald Trump and making excuses for him. He was there at the Jericho March in November of 2020. He was the MC of the Jericho March. Yeah, and March. you and he had some uh, a Twitter argument from what I can piece together, and uh, he ends up blocking you on Twitter, maybe other social media as well. Were you ever friends with him? Uh, you obviously took different paths. Were you ever friends? We never worked side by side because he lived in New York, and we gave him a one-year contract to do some writing for VeggieTales, and he worked from New York the whole time. Never, never He was worked. a voice on one of them, right? He was the narrator for Esther. Yeah, and he wrote one other segment that we used. So you were never close. We would hang out if we bumped into each other at a conference. And that probably happened three times in 20 years. Have you lost relationships and friendships, if not with him, because you were never tight with him, with other people that were important to you because of your outspokenness? Um, there are people that don't really want to talk to me anymore because they've decided I'm not on their team. These are people in your church or people? No, not so much in my church, but just, you know, just people that I know loosely. Some have even been guests on the show years ago, but we probably wouldn't have them back now and they probably wouldn't want to come back. Um, and then I've been unfriended by distant relatives on Facebook because, you know, they said rude things about George Floyd or something. And I just said, you know, I don't think that's number one, accurate, number two, kind. Um, and, you know, some people don't like to be pushed back against, even from someone that they have formerly been close to. We take our politics very, very seriously in America, very, very seriously. And we confuse them with our religious worldview. And boy, it's a mess. Some people say that politics has become the new religion, both for people inside and outside the church. You, you talked earlier about how these are my words, not yours, but maybe you got a little too impressed with yourself back in the big idea days that you were really essential, you were really important, you were going to do all these cool things. Wasn't God lucky to have you on his team? You're kind of still a big deal. 
Uh, and I'm wondering, what did you learn from VeggieTales that you've been able to incorporate in your life now as the leader of this ministry? You know, it goes by Holy Post, but you're still a big deal. So how are you preventing that from happening again? I, it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's, I just don't take myself very seriously at all. That's why it's called Holy Post, because it's a ridiculous name, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Post. And that's why I do, every third episode or so, I do a segment called News of the Butt. And it started out with, I just found a funny story about turtles. You know, when turtles hibernate, they actually absorb oxygen through their butts. I didn't know that. I love learning new things. Wow. So I just told that story on the podcast one day and just randomly ended it by saying, and this has been the news of the butt. And then people are like, oh, here's more butt news. So they send me butt news, like different stories about you know new developments in toilet technology or whatever. When you do that, it's very hard to take yourself seriously as a <laughs> serious Christian leader. I'm not trying to be a serious Christian leader. You know, I like Stephen Colbert. You know, I like John Oliver. I like those guys that they have something to say. Stephen Colbert has things to say, but he doesn't take himself seriously while he's saying them. I think he was much funnier in Comedy Central than he is now. I think he has been overtaken by politics like everything else. And I'd like to laugh more and, you know, hear his political opinions well, less. I think, but. I think the Trump years were brutal on everyone who does commentary. Yeah, they broke comedians, I think, yeah. the Trump years. Yeah, they did. They're not funny anymore. Because, <laughs> first of all, it made you so angry. You know, they would read the news and they'd be so angry. But also, so many of the things that were coming Coming out of the White House were so ridiculous that you couldn't even make a joke about them that would be more ridiculous. So it became almost impossible to do the nightly talk shows and do commentary on the president or the White House without either just bursting into tears or it kind of twisted people to try to figure out how to respond, especially people that were already coming from a liberal point of view. So your co-host on the podcast, Sky Jathani, he talks about the evangelical industrial complex. And I've never really heard him define that, but I think he's taking that from the military industrial complex of Eisenhower. And of course, Eisenhower is this D-Day general and his warning before he left office, it carried a lot of weight. Is Holy Post part of the evangelical industrial complex? I mean, what is it that you are, I know it's Sky, but I think you yeah. guys are on the same page. What is it you guys are warning us about? What do we need to be alert to? Yeah. Um, it's, well, it's the same thing. If you're listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that podcast, it's the same thing they're talking about is that we have a culture around Christian publishing, Christian conferences, Christian media that uh, elevates celebrity. This happened in Christian publishing probably 15 years ago, where the major Christian publishers just got rid of half of their authors, just in like one fell swoop. We want to put more focus on fewer authors. So we really only want branded authors. We want authors that everybody knows already, which is why today it's easier for a blogging mom who has a huge following to get a Christian publishing deal than for a thoughtful Bible scholar to get a Christian publishing deal because the blogging mom has a million followers. She has a platform. Yes, as a platform. You don't get to be a Catholic priest unless you go through the system to be a Catholic priest because there's a top-down hierarchy and approval and command and control. Evangelicalism is the Wild West. Evangelicalism is a strip mall in the suburbs where anything that pulls in a crowd can fill the parking lot. Anyone can put up a stand, put up a flag and say, hey, I am a Christian personality. And if you say things that attract enough attention, you will then get platformed. You'll get invited to speak at conferences 
you'll get a book deal. You know, you'll get Christian radio exposure. And the only thing that drives most of that is, will it sell? And that's what Sky is talking about with the evangelical industrial complex is that we're more concerned about sustaining. It's like the defense industry. What Eisenhower was concerned about is we're going to end up fighting wars just to justify sustaining these businesses. These businesses are going to be the tails that wag the dogs in our foreign policy strategy. And in the case of the evangelical industrial complex, it's the publishers and the conferences. It's the apparatus that we've built that is the tail that's wagging the dog of whose voices get platformed as godly leaders. And it's not always the right people. seems like one of the hard things for evangelicalism is that there really aren't any boundaries. Like you said, it's the strip mall, it's the Wild West. Anybody can pull in, anybody can call themselves an evangelical. Anybody can call themselves a Baptist. You can't even have anyone tell you you're not a Baptist. I'm starting a Baptist church. What do you believe? I don't know. Doesn't matter. We're a Baptist. I saw Ryan Burge, the sociologist at Eastern Illinois, said that right now 27% of people claiming to be evangelicals don't go to church. Uh, Anybody can call themselves whatever they want, and there's no boundaries. And so what happens is that that whoever's selling, whoever's making money, that's what gets promoted. And so it seems like even in the rise and fall of Mars Hill, like you mentioned, as much as anything to me, it's a warning to people like you and me, just ordinary evangelicals, hey, be careful who you go after. There's nobody to kick anybody out of evangelicalism, right? Because there's nobody to accept you into it. So you can't you can't get kicked out then. So it is a mass movement. It's largely a populist movement, which I think is why it can live so comfortably with Trumpism. Also a populist movement and populism, like we're the people, we should pick what's right. We, the people, should be in charge of everything. And there's truth in that, but there's also the notion of gatekeepers. It's argument over masks and vaccines where you have, okay, we built this system where we actually have, you know, there's a National Institute of Health and then someone runs that and under that is the head of immunology. And so they're making recommendations for how we as a nation can survive a pandemic. And everyone down at the bottom is saying, We don't have to listen to you. You said you're the boss. Or listen to the guy on Facebook who's smearing horse paste on his nose. Either way, either way. And we do that in Christianity as well. It's like we're buying horse paste because the guy on YouTube was funny. Well, I think you're right in the sense that evangelicalism is a populist movement. I think that our elites have lost credibility. And some of that is the populism that you describe, but some of it is because they have uh, governed in an unserious way. They have uh, they have politicized themselves. They have in the government, yes. In evangelicalism, there isn't really governance. No, yes, you're right. I'm talking about when you mentioned the National Institute of Health and all of that. They've lost credibility, and so I wish that we had elites. I'm pro-elite if you're educated and, you know, and you're informed and you're hardworking and you have this sincere— Everyone's uh, pro-elite when they have cancer. Everyone is pro-elite. It's like, who's the best doctor? I'm going to look at U.S. News World Report. Who's the best cancer hospital in the world that has the best, most experts, the most elite doctors? That's where I'm going because I have cancer. When we don't have cancer, we hate elites. I don't mind elites as long as they are working for the best interest of the country, but when they start putting themselves and their political position and their political tribe above what's best for the country, I think they get what they deserve, which is a loss of credibility, but it hurts all of us. We all suffer for it. 
Hey, Phil, I appreciate the time that you've given us today. Where can people find you? Uh, Theholypost.com? Yeah, you can go to holypost.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and Facebook, although Facebook is, I don't know, Facebook, but I'm still there because it's a good way to get videos out to try to teach people the right things in the midst of all the videos teaching people nonsense. So yeah, follow me on Twitter or go to holypost.com and just look up the Holy Post on uh, iTunes or wherever you find fine podcasts. I will say this, your videos that you do uh, are really good. I found them on your website. I'd rather avoid Facebook, but they're challenging. And I don't always find myself agreeing with everything. I go, well, what about this? And what about that? But they're very well done. They're interesting. And you for sure will learn something. So go to the website if for nothing else than to see that. And if you agree with everything I say, one of us is unnecessary. (laughs) Thank you for that. Hey, Phil, would you pray for us as we close? Would you pray for the for the health the unity the spiritual well-being of the american church oh lord jesus thank you for the opportunity we have to speak publicly to share our faith uh to share our perspective um to try to sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron thank you for podcasting which has been a wonderful medium uh, for so many new voices to get out Uh, But guide us as we uh, work through these divisive times, Lord. Help us, even when we think we're trying to do the right thing, Lord, help us not to add to the divisiveness. Um, Let us speak the truth in love, in uh, good-naturedness. Let us take you seriously and take ourselves very unseriously and let us resist the world's demands that we line up in tribes, uh, that we name teams, that we wear team colors. And, and most of all, uh, let us resist the urge to demonize uh, those that we, we consider the other. Lord, uh, you died for the other. You came for the other. Uh, we should live for the other. And that ultimately is is your witness through us to the world. So help us to be your hands and feet in a divided world uh, and bring reconciliation um, through you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 